there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. An Indian named Domingo Wakcha, we always called him Wakcha, he was a Quechua Indian. He was doing some shellacking of the rather fancy house that Jim Elliot had built in the eastern jungle of Ecuador one day. Jim had died by this time, and I was in the house, I think teaching my literacy class of girls, and I heard Domingo say, which is about the most powerful expletive that a Quechua can use, and it means, oh no. Um, so I went out to see what had happened. I thought maybe he'd fallen or dumped the can of shellac or something. And his two-year-old child had his arm in the, can, in the can of shellac, up to the shoulder almost, and he was screaming his head off, this little boy. And so Domingo climbed down his ladder and went over and tried to pull the little boy's, pulled his, his hand out of the shellac, but he was, the little boy was clutching a piece of manioc, which is the staple food of the jungle Indians. And the father had a terrible time trying to persuade the little boy to drop it. He didn't want to grab it himself because, of course, he didn't want to get full of shellac. But that little boy was determined to hang on to that piece of manioc. Of course, what he couldn't fathom was that his father wanted him to let go of that one so that he could give him another one, a clean one. My talk this morning is on the gift of tenacity. And I'm sure you know what the definition of tenacity is. Adhesiveness, stick-to-itiveness, toughness. A person who is tenacious is one who holds fast and retains what is in his possession. There seems to be a lot of confusion about legalism. I get accused often of being a legalist because I talk a lot about obedience. And the great question is, what does the Bible have to say about this and about this matter of, of tenacity, adhesiveness, dictuitiveness, etc.? It has a lot to say. A very large number of verses deal with that. And I made a list of ten. I won't read all the verses, but if you want a, some notes, the first one, two, three, four, five, six, are from Hebrews. So Hebrews 2, 1 says, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Hebrews 3, 6, we are his house, speaking of God's house, if we hold on to our courage. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14 See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. Hebrews 4.14, hold firmly to the faith we possess. 10.23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The same verse speaks of, well, this, the message of the verse is about stability of spirit. Whether broken by adversity or tempted by prosperity, we are never to depart from the right way. And the Apostle Paul said, I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come can ever, I'm sure that none of those can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. Hebrews 10.25, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. 
And then two from Revelation, Revelation 2.13. I know where you live. This is God talking to the church in Pergamum. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Is it possible for us to renounce our faith? If we do, what then do we have left? Many people write to me about being angry at God. One, one young woman wrote to me to say that her mother had been praying that this daughter would marry a certain man. The father and the daughter disagreed. The mother then declared that she would no longer pray for the right man to come. Now, my question would be to that mother, if I had an opportunity to say this to her, which I don't, uh, would you then ever be able to say, thy will be done? She has made up her mind that her daughter is going to marry this man or nobody, and she's not going to pray for anybody else. But God says to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Then Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. And what good news that must have been for old John on the island of Patmos. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Would God say that if it were impossible that a crown might be taken? I want you to th stop and think now. These, this list, are these declarative sentences or are they imperatives? Well, they're certainly imperatives, aren't they? God is not making ten suggestions. He is telling us what we're to do. And he didn't give ten suggestions to Moses, as you know, on the mount. It was ten commandments. But in today's world, we treat them as though they were suggestions, and if we feel good about it, uh, then we'll do it if, if it works, and if I like it, and if it doesn't bother my friends too much, and if I feel really good, really, really good, you know, really, really, really good about it, <laughs> then I'll do it. The gift of tenacity. And one of my most important tutors in this matter is Amy Carmichael. Of course, I never met her. But it would be impossible for me to describe or assess the influence that that woman's writings have had in my life. And among other things, the beautiful poetry that she wrote. If you want the book, the book of poetry, it's called Toward Jerusalem, and it is in print. All of her books are not in print. She wrote 40, but 14 are still in print, and they are available through the Christian Literature Crusade. And one of the poems that I memorized many, many years ago says, it describes the tenacity of that woman's faith, and she certainly went through hell and high water in her work for 53 years in India with no furloughs. She died in India. And she wrote from prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O captain, free thy soldier who would follow thee. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings. Not thus our spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. From silken self, O Captain Free, thy soldier who would follow thee. And that reminds me of my old Bible teacher, Mr. L. E. Maxwell of Prairie Bible Institute, and I can remember his praying one time, O Lord, deliver us from our sad, sweet 
stinking selves. <laughs> For your outline, point one, the choice. Now God gives us the gift of tenacity if we want it. And if we are not by nature tenacious, stick to it, stick intuitive, tough, holding fast, we can learn that and we can receive the grace to act in that way. But the choice that God gives us is obedience and there is no hour of our lives that does not hold such a choice. There are always choices to be made. And I'm reminded again of that great soldier of the Lord, Betty Scott Stam. And in her prayer, which I gave to you last night, she says, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes. Relinquishment is the first choice. And accept thy will for my life. Acceptance is the second choice. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee. That's an offering. Relinquishment, acceptance, and offering. Three essential elements in the godly life, the, the way of the cross. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did. He relinquished his glory in heaven. He came out of the ivory palaces into the world of woe, a radical humiliation and relinquishment. And then he accepted the will of his Father. And he said, Look, not my will, but thine be done. And he offered himself an obedient sacrifice. So he calls you and me to decide whether we're going to be tenacious or whether we're going to be loose and limp and wimpy and just let go of things when everything seems to be falling apart. We sink into that satanic swamp of self-pity instead of accepting the things which God himself has allowed to happen. Now, why do I call it a gift? Well, because God has given us the freedom to choose. And that is one of the most staggering facts to me about the nature of God, that he who is God and Lord of the universe and he who created everything from the tiniest creature to the glory of the heavens, that he should create people with the power to choose to defy him. We can shake our fist in his face. We can declare to the universe that God does not exist and he doesn't strike us with a thunderbolt. The story is told of, I believe, Voltaire, or one of those famous European atheists, who in front of a whole audience said, I'm going to give God one minute to strike me dead if he lives, if, if God exists. And he stood with his watch while those very slow 60 seconds ticked by. And people fainted in the audience, waiting, scared to death that God was going to show his hand. And the time ran out, and Voltaire said, I've proved to you that God does not exist. And a man stood up and he said, no. He said, you have only proved one thing, that God is very patient. <laughs> All things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. We have absolutely nothing to offer to God except what he has given us. And that should remind us of our utter poverty. What do we have to give to God? Well, if we give him ourselves, where did they come from? It's like a little child who asks his mother for some money so that the little child can go and buy his mama a present. And of course, a loving mother is going to give the child the money. I can remember being given a dime to buy a Christmas present for my mother, and I was absolutely thrilled to find that I could buy a box of chocolates for 10 cents when I was about five years old. Can you imagine? Romano Guardini says, human existence was designed to rest not only on divine creation, but also upon human decision. 
Human existence was designed to rest not only on divine creation, but also upon human decision. And then he tells us why. Precisely because God's omnipotence is crowned in the freedom of the individual to accept or reject him. That's a tremendous statement, and it sorts out one of the mysteries. It doesn't explain it, but it is an answer when people insist upon trying to figure out the mystery of God's omnipotence and man's choice. I'll read it again. Human existence was designed to rest not only on divine creation, but also upon human decision, precisely because God's omnipotence is crowned in the freedom of the individual to accept or reject him. God has created a world in which our work is necessary. Our choices matter. You teach your little child that he has to clean his room. Now, if the little child doesn't clean the room and you clean it for him, what have you taught him? You've taught him that he doesn't need to clean his room. So anytime we accept a responsibility that we have assigned to a child, then we are undermining that child's moral fiber. Some of you know the story of the farmer who had a beautiful wheat field, a huge farm of many miles of waving grain. And the preacher went out to visit and stood there looking out over these endless acres of waving grain in the sunshine. And he said to John, the farmer, he said, well, John, you and God have done a wonderful job here. And John stood there and sort of kicked a clod of earth and took his hat off and slapped his thigh for a little bit. And he said, well, preacher, he said, you should have seen it when God had it by himself. (laughs) God gives the sun and the rain and the seed and the soil, but God does not plant the seed and he doesn't do all the um, fertilizing and the harrowing and the harvesting and the grinding and all the rest of it. And he doesn't wash my dishes. He never has. I don't ever expect him to. Because he has designed a world in which our choices matter. And one of the most magnificent proofs of his omnipotent design is that we are allowed to pray. And we are praying, of course, telling God things that God already knows. But it is... God's gift laid in human hands. God knows what he's going to do, but God has designed a world in which my choices matter, and I can choose to pray or I can choose not to pray. I can say, well, what's the point of praying? God knows what he's going to do anyway, and he's not going to change his mind. There are a whole lot of things that are not going to happen unless we pray, because that's the way God arranged it, not because he had to, because he wanted to. When Jesus was here on earth, he did the will of his Father, perfectly, every minute of every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. And he accepted the limitations of being a man. He who was omnipotent was no longer omnipotent. The Bible tells us he could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. He who was omnipresent could not possibly be omnipresent and be a man. When he was in Samaria, he was not in Jerusalem. When he was in Jerusalem, he was not in Galilee. People closed their hearts to him, including his disciples. His disciples took a long time in those brief three years to figure out who he was. You remember that when they were in the boat on the sea, they were astounded that Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and the wind and the waves obeyed him. And they said to each other, who is this? And we read that at the end, they all forsook him and fled. Couldn't he have forced them to to believe? Forced them to obey? Yes, he could have, but it was God's divine choice that you and I should have the the choice to disobey and to be obtuse. People close their hearts. They should not close their hearts but we do it all the time. So here we, we, we look at these two 
distinct attributes of God, his omnipotence, and his conferring upon us the ability to choose. My second husband, Addison Leach, was a professor, a theologian, and a philosopher. And he taught in the seminary and, of course, had to answer the same questions every year from every new student that came about the, the most unanswerable of all theological and philosophical questions, and that is, why does God permit evil? And my husband would answer very simply. He said, we would drive in a theological stake over here on the sovereignty of God. We drive in another theological stake over here on man's freedom to choose. We're not going to get these stakes together intellectually. And as Evelyn Underhill said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. God's gift laid in human hands. The mystery of God's eternal omniscience and omnipotence and our freedom of choice. It is a hopelessly entangled mystery, this question of simultaneous freedom and necessity. God's gift laid in human hands. Now, do you understand this? I don't. Not intellectually. But instead of stewing over it and trying to sort it out with my feeble intellect, I want instead to lift it to the plane of adoration. And adoration asks for no explanations. We adore. We simply get down on our knees. We lift up our hands and say, Lord, I don't understand you. It would be very arrogant of me to imagine that I could. I certainly don't understand why you have allowed this or that to happen in my life or in the life of someone I love. But Lord, I do believe that you know exactly what you're doing, that you never make a mistake, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to leave this with you. This is what it means to be a Christian, to trust, obey, love, and adore to put myself at God's disposal. And that's what Betty Scott Stam did, didn't, didn't she? I give up all my own plans and purposes. I accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. And when God saw fit to allow her and her husband to be captured by Chinese communists, they were tenacious. Their faith never faltered. God was in charge of this. God was allowing this. And John wrote a most beautiful letter to the China Inland Mission, of which they were members, explaining that they were in the hands of the communists. A tremendous uh, ransom was being demanded, which he knew that the mission could not possibly pay, or and certainly would not, even if they could. And so he simply let the people in the mission know that he and Betty were perfectly at peace in the will of God, and let come what may. And last night we talked about that perfect example of acceptance, that little Mary who said, yes, behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it happen, as you say. That is the attitude that should characterize every one of us. The divine fiat, you Latin students know what that means, but it's really more blunt, more powerful, and much simpler in Latin. Fiat, let it be done, as you say. Anything you say, Lord, we are at his disposal. And one of the most astounding facts in the whole history of the world, it seems to me, is that so often when the Holy Spirit wants to renew us, he does so through communion with some humble human creature. When we look back over our lives and we think of God's dealings with us, we see people all through them, people who have pointed us to him, people who have been for us um, the very icons of holiness. And I have been tremendously blessed in having not only spiritual father and mother, uh, my 
parents, my biological parents, were very godly, seven-day-a-week kind of Christians, but I've had many spiritual mothers and fathers as well for whom I thank God. When you listen to Elizabeth Elliot, you're not hearing anything new. You're not hearing anything creative. I am not creative. Only God can make something out of nothing. And that's what I think of as creativity. The rest of us are just makers. We take what God already gave us, you know, the eggs and the flour and the sugar. I can make cake, but I can't make the eggs and the flour and the sugar. So God is the creator. A girl came bounding up to me one time after a student conference and she said, Mrs. Elliott, she said, don't you think it's kind of neat how God's kind of creative? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's the understatement of the century. <laughs> God's kind of creative. <laughs> but God does these astounding things in the history of the world through human creatures, humble human creatures, and all of them sinful human creatures. Think of Moses, the effect that he had. Think of Gideon. Think of Mary Magdalene. Think of Fanny Crosby, that blind songwriter. She wrote over eight thousand hymns and she was blind from the time she was six weeks old. Johnny Erickson and of course Mary who gave herself without reservation. The fruits of the Spirit are to be demonstrated in each of us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do any of those describe your character in the natural sense. Well, some people seem to be more patient, kind, and good that other than other people, and maybe there are some people that are born that way, but I think, generally speaking, it has to be a choice to ask God, I want those fruits of the Spirit, Lord, that is my choice, rather than being impatient, unkind, unloving, etc. A steadfast heart says, Thy will be done. And when I pray, thy will be done, very often this is going to mean my will be undone. And that is a choice. The second thing in your outline is the curriculum. The first is the choice, the second is the curriculum. Now what is this curriculum which God requires of us? It is a living sacrifice which means a daily offering. It wouldn't be a bad idea for us daily to ratify the surrender that we perhaps once made at a certain point in time. But daily I want to offer not only myself to the Lord, but everything that I do, which includes housework, of course, um, writing a newsletter, preparing radio programs and things like that, are always guns to my head, as it were. But I want to, instead of sinking under the weight, I want to say thank you, Lord, for this work. It looks to me as though I have much more here than I can do. I'm going to trust you to help me to do what you want me to do today. So it is a daily offering, and things interrupt, don't they? Things that were not on your schedule. And it may be that that is, the precisely, that is precisely the most important thing for you to offer to God because it was not your choice. It was not something that you anticipated at all. And it seems to be a monkey wrench that's just been thrown into your day and it throws everything off. But my times are in your hands, Lord. You know about this traffic jam. You know about that broken down washing machine. You know about the burnt roast. You know about these unexpected visitors that are coming. You know about this bore that calls me up and wants to talk on the phone for 45 minutes. Um, behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. And then, once the thing is taken care of, whatever it is, don't fall all over yourself rushing to complete everything that you thought you had to do on that particular day. I love what St. Benedict required of his monks in the monastery. When he established his rule, he said, Every, all work is to be done without haste and without sloth. A very good rule for your children. I have a granddaughter who is very much like me and wanting to get things over with. Lars gets so irritated with me because he says, all you're thinking about is getting it over with and getting it out of here. Well, unfortunately, my granddaughter Elizabeth, who is 17, is a lot like that, and she 
having been homeschooled, I had the opportunity to, to observe the way she was doing her schoolwork a few times, and she was doing them in a very slapdash way. She's not stupid, but she was just making a mess of things because she wanted to do it with haste. I am not my own. Lord, here I hold within my trembling hand this will of mine, a thing which seemeth small. And only thou, O Christ, canst understand how when I yield thee this, I yield my all. It hath been wet with tears and stained with sighs, clenched in my grasp till beauty it hath none. Now from thy footstool where it prostrate lies, my prayer ascendeth, let thy will be done. The curriculum is acceptance, relinquishment, and offering daily. There are always things we're going to have to accept that we would not normally want. There are always ways in which we can offer ourselves against our will. We can give this will of mine, which wanted this thing to happen, Lord, I yield it to you. And when I give you my will, you know that I yield my all. Jean Nicholas Grew said, in, he lived in the 17th, 1700s, 1800s, it is when the heavenly fire has departed and the soul is cool again that we discover the real quality of our will. It is when the heavenly fire has departed. We love it when we have wonderful spiritual experiences that we can talk about and write about and give a testimony about. But that's not the real test. It's when the heavenly fire has departed and the soul is cool that we discover the real quality of our will. Some of us are people with mood swings extremely difficult thing to live with. It is like a city whose walls are broken down. Proverbs 25, 28, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. We do not have to act according to our moods. Let's get that through our heads, especially we women need to hear that. Our temptation is to be nasty because we feel nasty. That is not an apostolic virtue, and it's got to go. <laughs> you get up in the morning and you say, don't talk to me, I haven't had my coffee yet. I don't want to talk to anybody until I get my coffee. Do you have that right to be nasty to the rest of the crowd just because you feel that way? The psalmist said, my soul is downcast within me, a perfectly honest description of a mood. But what does he do about it? He says, therefore, will I remember you? He doesn't say, but I'm going to try to remember you. He says, this is the fact of my life. My soul is downcast within me. I'm in, I'm in misery. I'm in the pits. And very because of that, specifically because of that, I will remember you. And my remembrance of God is going to alter my attitude. And that is a daily curriculum. And I believe that Mary, just from what, we, what little we learn about her, which is so little, we would love to know more, but we never have any clue that Mary gave way to her moods. And we find that when Jesus was being crucified, the Bible says there stood by the cross of Jesus, Mary, his mother. A lot of women would have been lying in a sobbing heap, expecting to be hovered over and propped up and surrounded and comforted. There stood by the cross of Jesus, Mary, his mother. And I think that the, the, the fact that she was able to do that after th 33 years must have meant that she did not allow her own joys or sorrows to interrupt the course of her obedience. And that was a great lesson for me when I experienced the death, deaths of my husbands. It was a wonderful thing to me to realize that God had given me work to do. 
and that my feelings did not have to interfere with the performance of those very ordinary duties. When I was in the jungle, I had uh, all kinds of duties added to my list because I was trying to do the things that Jim had done as well as the things, as the things that I had done. When Ad died, I had housework. I had a book that I was writing at the time and just the ordinary, humble obligations of my station in life were my salvation. It was a gift from God. Proceeding through the obligations, the responsibilities that God has given you without allowing your joys or your sorrows to interrupt. That is, to me, an important spiritual principle and and a very necessary part of God's curriculum. There's a family in South Carolina that some of you perhaps know or know about, the Ritu family. They had four children of their own. Two of those children died. And they have adopted, as far as I know so far, 16 children, 10 of whom are very seriously handicapped, very seriously handicapped. They've got blind children. They've got uh, crippled children. They have a little boy who weighed 28 pounds at the age of 14. And I have never met these people, but I've talked to Debbie on the phone because I wanted to mention her work in my newsletter. And I never have heard a more joyful voice come over the phone. And of course, my question to her was, why do you do this? And she just said, oh, Elizabeth, there are so many children out there that nobody wants. We want them. We love them. And she said, we pray that God will give us more children. Can you imagine? And I said, well, you must have a lot of help. And she said, my husband and I do the, most of the work. She said, our two biological children are in their late teens and they help. But she said, all the children have jobs. Every child has work to do. And it's a happy home. She sent me a picture of them. They all look very nicely dressed, very well behaved, very happy, and I'm sure they don't always look that way and they don't always behave that way. But I see that as an example of giving themselves wholly to God to do what is an impossibility, humanly speaking, and yet they're doing it. Can they act on their feelings when they get up in the morning? They couldn't possibly and still fulfill the will of God. Lastly, the exams. The choice, the curriculum, the exams. The curriculum is the everyday performance. The exams are those tests or trials through which we have to go in order to be approved. You know the verse that says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And the word study there is not referring to academic lessons. The word study simply means present yourself to God as a workman approved. Be willing to be tested, to be put under examination. Now what is this test or trial or examination? Well, it's called life, isn't it? People think they've got such huge and unusual and insoluble problems, but the truth is that's life. That's what life is. That's what life's about, isn't it? All kinds of unexpected things that we don't think we can handle. Oh, I just can't handle it. I've just had it up to here. Oh, I'm at the end of my rope. Think of Jesus willing, he who made the stars, he whose hands created the universe and everything from the clams to the giraffes, he became a hidden tiny seed in the womb of a human mother. Have you thought about the Redeemer in the womb? I never had thought much about it until the last few years, and the more I think about it, the more staggered I am. He had to grow in that womb. He had to pass through that birth canal. He had to be born in presumably a filthy, perhaps cold stable. But he certainly was helpless. He had to become helpless. He had to be cared for. The humiliation, the poverty, the hurt. And perhaps he was ridiculed as a child because he certainly had to be a very good child. 
and he was perhaps given all sorts of names by the neighborhood children. He was the child of a very poor family. Presumably he learned carpentry. We assume that that's what he did for 30 years. We think of his, the whole span of his life, which was brief by comparison with many, those 30 years of silence and hiddenness, then the baptism, then the temptation, then success, followers, miracles, praises, hosannas, popularity. But then the Bible tells us he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The indifference of the people to whom he preached, the incessant demands, people plucking his sleeve constantly, asking him for things. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was misunderstood. He was opposed, mocked, hated, captured, blindfolded, slapped, stripped, imprisoned, and nailed to a cross. The examination was passed with flying colors. As he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When, Daniel, when Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were accused of refusing to bow down to the king's image, the king said to them, Do you really think your God can deliver you from this fiery furnace? They knew what the penalty was going to be. And they said, yes, uh, we do believe that our God can deliver us from the fiery furnace, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not bow down to you or serve you. Now that is tenacity. Nothing was going to shake that absolutely fixed confidence that God's got the whole world in his hands. Absolutely nothing has happened that surprises him. Nothing has happened of which he is not in control. And they went into that fiery furnace with no knowledge whatsoever that God was going to deliver them. And you remember the king's astonishment when he said to his henchmen there, didn't we put three people in the furnace? I see four. My old friend Samuel Rutherford, who died back in the 1700s, said, for some, it is down crosses and up umbrellas. But I am persuaded that we must take heaven with the wind and the rain in our faces. For some, it is down crosses and up umbrellas. But I am persuaded that we must take heaven with the wind and the rain in our faces. The gift of tenacity, endurance, make the decision, choose, and stick to it. And my parents were adamant about this. If we made a commitment that we were going to be at the Halloween party, it didn't make any difference. If a far more attractive offer came up, we were going to crawl on our stomachs if we had to, to keep the commitment. Endurance, make the decision, you choose the decision, you make your decision and you stick to it. Marriage is a commitment. Francis de Sales says, he has kept us hitherto. He will take care of us tomorrow. Either he will shield us from suffering or he will give us uns unfailing strength to bear it. May God make us tenacious, stick-to-itiveness, toughness, holding fast, retaining what is in our possession. God bless you. Now I think we have another few minutes. Have we, Don? Is that correct? Ten minutes. Thank you. So I'm going to go through a few of these questions that we have since we only have 45 minutes for the question and answer period this afternoon and we had discussion about this last night. So I will just go through them in the order in which they've been given to me and I have not had a chance to look at these. Can you give us some practical ways to submit to our husbands? Yes, do what they say. <laughs> You know, I've never had a man ask me, could you give me some practical ways to submit to the police or to the boss at work or to the IRS, IRA, the IRS, what am I saying? 
We don't have to submit to the IRA at this point. It's women that have a huge problem with this submission thing. And of course, they feel very strongly that most of the things that their husbands are asking them to do are exceptions to the rule. But you know what it says in Ephesians? Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. That's what it says. That's not Elizabeth Elliot talking. That's what the Bible says. And you can like it or you can lump it, but that's what it says. But what if it's disastrous? Is that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they went into the fiery furnace? What if it's disastrous? Of course it was disastrous. But who was in charge? Well, I just know that if I do this and my husband wants me to do, it's going to ruin our family. It's going to just undermine everything that we're trying to do with these children, etc. She goes on to say, I'm 32, he's 34, we've been married for one year. I know there's a direct relationship with how much I submit to God and how much I submit to my husband. Yes, of course. My submission to my husband is obedience to God. I remember your phrase, my life for yours, when I give of myself not only to him but to others, is serving the same as submitting or is serving a product of submitting? That's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it that way. Uh, both are required of us. Jesus makes it very clear that we are unprofitable servants, even when we've done everything that we're supposed to do. We are servants, period. And Jesus came to serve. He set us the example when he got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet. He submitted to civil authority. He submitted to the will of his Father. And so when we think that something impossible is being asked of us, let's remember Jesus Christ. Let's remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and John the Baptist, and all the rest of them. What words of comfort can you offer from God's word to those of us here who have homosexual children? I have nothing to say except prayer for people like that. I'm sure you have said whatever you can say to them. They know your views on that. But you're just going to have to leave them with God. As a recent widow, <clears throat> I, with small children, my biggest struggle has not been my acceptance of God's will, but my oldest daughter's unacceptance. How can I train her to accept God's will for her life? The most important thing is your example. Of course, the child has not reached the stage either intellectually or spiritually that you have. You cannot expect of her an instant acceptance. These are lessons which it takes most of us all of our lives fully to learn. But you set the example and just continually remind her, God does love us. This didn't happen for nothing. And he wants to teach us something. He wants to show us his love through this experience. Of course, my daughter Valerie did not know her father. She was 10 months old when he died. But by the time she was about two or three years old, she was singing, Jesus Loves Me. And she said to me one day, did Jesus love my daddy? And I said, yes. And then I knew what was coming. She said, well, why did he let him get killed? And that's where you start talking about mystery. You know, we really cannot understand God's reasons for things. But someday, he's going to show us the pattern on which he has been working. I want to say hello to Elizabeth. I've written her a few letters lately and sent her a book, and she's always so kind to reply. I know she must get hundreds of letters, and I really appreciate her kind responses. My question is, how does she prefer to be addressed? Well, you can just call me Elizabeth during this conference. Of course, I am Elizabeth Grin, and I am Mrs. Lars Grin. And I don't ever want anybody to imagine that I refuse my husband's name, but of course Elizabeth Elliott is my pen name, and publishers would take a very dim view of my wanting to change it to Elizabeth Howard Elliott Leach Grin. <laughs> so um, Lars is very gracious, allows me to be, to be called anything, and he gets called Mr. Elliott quite often. <laughs> and he says, I'm Mr. Elliott III. <laughs> But both of us are perfectly willing to be called Elizabeth and Lars anytime you want to address us here. A Navy admiral recently committed suicide. It made headlines. How should a Christian view this? And please comment on some pundits claim, death before dishonor. He was not a hero at the end. 
I think there have been two cases in the last year or so of uh, people in the Navy that have committed suicide because of headlines or accusations. I certainly don't know the answer to that one. How should a Christian view this? I, I just remember the fact that not very many things in this world are my business. I don't have to view it. It is something about which no view at all is required of me. What is your favorite passage dealing with contentment? Goodness, there are many of them, but let me give you Psalm 16:5. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. And that absolutely calms my spirit every time I think that I can't be content with this or that that has happened or whatever. I can remember that word, and it's a daily revelation to me and a wonderfully calming and simplifying principle. The Lord has assigned me my portion. I didn't think he had, had assigned me a long enough portion of marriage to either of my husbands. It was 27 months to Jim and four and a half years to add, and Lars has been around for over 18 years now. But the portion was precisely measured by a loving Heavenly Father. And whatever you might be feeling deprived of, you can be content with what you have. If you could have only one book in addition to the Bible, what would it be? Absolutely impossible question. <laughs> any one of C.S. Lewis, any one of Amy Carmichael, any one of George MacDonald, and I could give a whole long list of others that I have in my study. My study is lined with my favorite books, but to choose one is not possible. Any words of wisdom you may share with Christian parents whose grown children are unsaved besides prayer and example? <laughs> Keep your mouth shut. They know your position if it's different from yours. You've already made, made that clear to them, I'm sure. Um, certainly pray and set the example. Treat them with kindness, with love, as you would Christ himself. Remember what he said in uh, Matthew 25:40. Inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. So I have no warrant for treating anybody in the world any differently then I would want to treat Jesus Christ. And that is a very tough assignment, isn't it? Um, Christian parents, one of the things we do have to learn, there are many things that we need to learn when our children come of age, uh, they are responsible to God and it's time to let go. If they make wrong choices, you may have opportunity, depending on the kind of relationship you have with them, to discuss those, but you may not. Don't force it, don't repeat it, don't nag, and by all means, do not tell your in-laws what to do. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today, and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.